Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. All right, what's up, Gromies? Welcome to Arroya Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I'm your moderator, Keisha, and this is episode 88. If you're on the Hangout or checking us out live on YouTube or Instagram, drop your question in the chat, and if it gets picked, we'll cover it during the show. What's up, Seth and Jason? How are you guys doing today? Well, yeah, pretty good. Good. All right. Let's get into it. We got this question in from Ilya. They wrote, hey, gang, got the Arroyo Go set up a couple weeks ago, blowing my mind with all the stuff I'm learning. I'm in one gallon Quar Grow Cocoa with 0.3 gallon per hour drippers. And as I'm trying to get to full saturation in all bags, I'm noticing that some go up to 70% field capacity and others only 60, no matter how many shots I give them. Could it be a sensor placement issue or is it normal for compressed cocoa to have such a big variance in max volumetric water content? So, I mean, it sounds like you've got a, a pretty decent setup. Love, love your dripper rate. Uh, glad to see you using Go to monitor this and you're asking the right questions. So um, I would say don't get too concerned about it. Uh, 10% difference, um, uh, you know, across the board, there's it's not a huge impact usually for that type of courier. We see that field capacity right at 65%. So you got, you got a few that are hanging above a few that are hanging below. Um, really glad you're also paying attention to sensor installation. So when you think about the important things there, obviously the height from the bottom of the bag is going to be important. So use your installation template tool and then, um, and making sure that that sensor is flush into the media, uh, any air that is around those prongs, is going to cause some amount of, um, error in the water content reading that you're seeing. And then just because the consistency and, and nature, the natural product of core air, you can see that variation as well. So, you know, if that prong, you know, hits a, a hard chunky piece of core air when it's going in and, and compacts it, uh, that could cause an air pocket or a water pocket, any of those types of things. So, you know, at a plus or minus 5% water content field capacity, I probably wouldn't spend too much time. You're still going to be getting extremely good data that's decision, you know, powerful enough to make good decisions on. Yeah. I mean, we look at uh, thousands and thousands of blocks worth of cocoa data, and uh, I would say that's highly expected. You know, even when we see a big commercial installation put in, let's say, you know, 2000 plants in a room. Once we blow it up to that scale, we definitely see inconsistencies in the cocoa. And an important thing to remember is, you know, it's a byproduct from another industry that's just come into horticulture in the last 15 years or so. And uh, in order for someone to shuck that coconut, process that husk, and get you a compressed block for a couple dollars while they're, you know, producing these coconuts in India or Sri Lanka, there, there's an associated tolerance we accept. If we wanted every block to be absolutely uniform, you'd be paying a lot more for your cocoa. And, uh, you know, back to what Jason said, best practice for your sensor installation is critical. So if you're having any inconsistency when you push it in, just as Jason mentioned, you know, a, a hard chunk in there, that happens quite often where we get a chunk of uh, husk that hasn't been ground too well. And if you're feeling, you know, some excessive resistance part of the way through the installation of the sensor, it might be a good idea to move it to the other side of the pot. And then also, you know, some of these bags after hydration, we kind of see some inconsistent packing. So one of the things, you know, depending on manufacturer that you can look at is, uh, you know, Dutch plant, for instance, has always recommended you hydrate the pots and don't get in there with your hands and stir it up. You want to keep as much consistency across that media as possible. So any variation you can introduce is going to affect that. And it's important to remember too, you know, these plants, even, even though your pots might not be hitting the exact same field capacity, your plants aren't going to be the exact same size either. Even in a perfectly run system. These are biological units. We see variation. It's dynamic. So as your plants grow, even if you started with a perfectly uniform substrate across your plant population, we see those lines start to change. And there's a few things that can inf influence that, you know, in cocoa, for instance, in a one gallon pot, if you're running a bigger plant, we usually expect to see that field capacity go down later in the run, just as your plants really packing that pot out with roots and filling that pore space that would normally be occupied by water. So there's a few things to keep in mind there. And then uh, as, you know, back to the saying, as your plants grow, we're looking at, you know, average trends here. 
if we've got, you know, even on a micro scale, let's say 16 plants on one irrigation zone, that's the biggest granularity of control we have. So if all my plants in there are running within 10% of each other, I'm just going to keep in mind that, hey, I need to adjust my set points on what I consider, you know, actions for irrigation to reflect that thought that like, hey, my sensor's plugged into the most average plant. I should expect that if I did nail the most average plant size, some of my plants are going to be a little bigger, taking up more water. Some are going to be a little smaller, taking up less water. And I need to plan everything within a set of ranges, not necessarily focus on a critical point unless I'm setting that critical point as an average point with which I need to react to. Yeah. And, you know, we've encountered this quite a bit as people uh, start to learn to use time series data in the substrate specifically. And, and really a lot of what it comes down to is is kind of mentally thinking about, hey, how, how is these numbers changing over time, right? So, you know, if, let's say you've got three sensors in or five sensors in. Are you seeing the, the you know, the drybacks all at, say, 15% or 20%? Are you seeing a, a big variation in that that delta number as well? So kind of start thinking, all right, well, rather than making sure right now my numbers are exactly matching because, well, not only is there differences among those plants and the substrates, um, you're just always going to have some amount of variation in what those exact numbers are. And that's not nearly as important as how is that number changing on a photo period basis. Yeah, absolutely. And then if we expand to, uh, if we're talking about dryback numbers, for instance, if you increase your pot size, but not your plant size, you're not going to have as much of a dryback. So really, when you first start using this, the best thing you can do is make sure your sensor installation is good. And just log that data for a while and look back. You know, you can start crop steering aggressively. Um, a lot of growers were, you know, we've always been crop steering through irrigation, whether we're in a big pot watering once a day or once every other day or in a small pot irrigating eight times a day all the way through. So start, you know, use it as a learning tool more than anything right off the bat and start to get used to what those numbers actually mean. Uh, one of my biggest things I tell people is right away, hey, now that you've got this and, you know, for years, you've probably been picking up your pots, adjusting your your hand feel to what, you know, the best scale you had available, right? The best tools that you had access to. Now it might be time to go in and start resetting some of those intuitive uh, measurements to match the new scale you're working with. So you can, you know, easily keep track of like, hey, here's what this 25% dry bag means on a block that's hitting 75%. Here's what it means on a block that's hitting 65, 60. And in the end, understanding that that dry bag value has a lot more to do with how vigorously your plant's growing and transpiring than it does an absolute value that we're always looking for. You guys, thank you so much for that. Yeah, it's all about those averages, right? Ilya, we appreciate your question. Good luck with the Arroyo Go. Keep us posted on how you're doing out there. Um, moving on to some live questions we got here from Instagram. Um, it's me, you know, wrote in. They write, first time crop steering on day six of flower and generative steering. Any advice? Keep generative steering for a while? Yeah. Start measuring your plants. Keep generative steering until you top out that stretch and can demonstrate it through your measurements. Hey, daily, this has been slowing down to the point where it's, you know, we're less than an inch or less than half an inch a day and start working it that way. Keep running generative and also be patient and look at the media you're working with and understand where you need to start drawing those dryback lines. If we're in cocoa, 20 to 25% is usually the bottom of where we want to dry back to. Rock wool, early on, we don't want to go down below that 40% line. Yeah, and I mean, as, as always, kind of goes without saying, uh, do your best to document things on a daily basis. Document what you're doing. Document what your plants are doing. Um, document their responses to the strategies that you're applying in there. So always think about, you know, crop registration is part of your grow cycle. Uh, obviously, these plants are typically going to grow almost regardless of what the conditions are within some pretty wide parameter because they're so tolerant but uh, you know in order to really get the best out of that crop we got we got to start hitting a narrow window of of environmental and substrate factors so you know make sure you're taking runoff numbers make sure you're attributing plant heights uh, node spacing is a great one to see if your your generative crop steering is 
uh, is successful in how that plant morphology ends up. Um, and obviously if you don't have any, any good systems to do it, get it in a notebook, start taking pictures with your phone. Um, I always encourage, you know, start doing that in a digital manner, get into a, a G drive so that you can start graphing those numbers and you can save those, um, those photos digitally, maybe it gives you a good option to start sharing them and get better advice from, from other growers in the community. Yeah. <clears throat> On that point, a picture is worth a thousand words. And if you don't store it in the right place, I couldn't tell you how many pictures in my phone show some weird plants, but I've got nothing more than a date and timestamp on it. If uh, I had been wise enough at the time to organize those into folders or files that, you know, classified each grow, and then I put in the rest of my notes, those pictures would actually mean something because I could reference what else was going on. Whereas if I'm not attributing that to anything or organizing it right, I might look at that picture and go, oh man, <clears throat> this is going to take me 20 minutes to dig up where that picture even came from or when. Reminds me of hours and hours of renaming pictures that I had taken, uh, you know, with the strain name and a, and a date and not always some note of what I was trying to capture there. But usually, you know, the more that you can get in there to attribute it, that metadata can, uh, can really help make sense of the big puzzle. Yeah. And if you, uh, even if you don't have a, a great history of note taking, if you do have some photos and notes, taking the time to try to organize those and then continuing to do that more intensely can also help you compare to a baseline of, you know, how you were growing before pictures worth a thousand words. If you've been running the same strain 10 times and you've got, you know, three pictures from each run in the past, maybe try to figure out what day you took those pictures and start setting some landmark KPIs for your strains and say, Hey, here's what it looked at at day 21 before. Here's what it looks at a day, like at day 21. Now, what should I be expecting? What's good? What's bad? And then go from there. Yeah. We're big fans of crop registration out here. Check out last week's episode. We did a really good overview on it. Um, and actually speaking of last week's episode, that was episode 88. You are not experiencing deja vu. I accidentally said that this is episode 88, but we're in episode 89. So anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, we got this comment actually on YouTube, I'm sorry, Instagram. Um, someone wrote, I'm having major dropout late in bud with crop steering. What do you guys think? Nutrient dropout? I don't know. Um, plants wilting? We is might it, have to, okay, so maybe if Let's you look at a few, a few options of what that might mean, okay. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. You know, if we're looking at out. plants wilting, um, a pretty common thing we'll see is trying to run too generative late, which means uh, typically for a lot of people, your plant is a lot bigger than your media proportionally it should be. And you're hitting a point where you can't actually run generative. So one thing we see is people going to try to ripen pretty hard. And by doing that, they're uh, pushing that dryback line all the way down into a temporary wilting point with cocoa. And then with rock wool, sometimes even down to that permanent wilting point. So that's one thing to be aware of. There's a definite bottom on how far you want to drive back. And then also, if we're not pushing enough runoff, we could be looking at some EC and pH issues, depending on the strain and exactly how much you've built up in that pot and what the uh, actual composition of those nutrients is. So that's just one thing. If they want to clarify what dropout is, um, I'd love to love to hear there. Yes, so we may have addressed one dropout issue, but if you have another one, please post it in the chat so we can, we can talk about it. Awesome. All right. We got this question just dropped on Instagram, PNW, PNW farmer. They write after I'm done mixing my feed, it's 3.1 EC pH 6.4. Should I use a lot of pH down or leave it as is 105 gallon tank? So it's, I mean, it's going to depend on your media a little bit. Um, if you were in soil, that might be a, a good place to be at that 6.4. When we're talking about um, cocoa, usually I like to be closer to say 5.8, five, 5.9. Five, um, and for rock wool, usually I like to be around 5.6. So there's a good chance. I mean, if you're using a, one of the more commercially popular medias like rock wool or cocoa, you're, you're going to benefit significantly by getting that, uh, that pH down in there and being in a more optimal range. Oh, absolutely. If we're not mixing any lime, calcium carbonate, or azomite, any kind of buffering mineral like that, that gives us some pH stability in the root zone. It's important to remember that although there is a pot and it looks like it's dirt, or in the case of rock wool, maybe a chunk of insulation, uh, 
We don't have any pH control. That plant, part of the reason we're doing that is we have full control over that nutrient solution going into the plant and we can count on it not reacting in an uncontrolled way inside the media. So that pH is very important. In a 105 gallon tank, um, you're probably not going to use a lot to bring it down from 6.4. In fact, if you're post, post salt mixing at 6.4, that's actually a pretty good spot to be. I know like around where we live, uh, if you're on well water in certain areas, for instance, your pH or your, your groundwater might come out at 8.2, 8.4. And in that case, I am I, I might actually be using a lot of pH down to get it from a 7.1 or 7.2 all the way down to that 5.8, So 6.4, not bad. And then, you know, one of the cool things about that, most of your pH down products on the market or some of the better ones are phosphoric acid. So you're actually adding a little bit of plant nutrition when you do that. The only time it can be an issue is if you are trying to temper water that's, let's say, you know, eight plus. Now you're introducing such a large proportion of phosphoric acid that it might actually be affecting your NPK ratio a little bit. And that's why a lot of farms and places will run an RO system or other water filtration just to get rid of the things that they don't want to have be a variable in how they mix their fertilizer solution. Yeah, and you know, also keep in mind that um, different pH downs are going to require different amounts of pH down in order to achieve that amount. So, uh, you know, phosphoric acid, like Seth said, that, that's actually one of the more effective ones. Um, something like citric acid or sulfuric acid is going to be the less effective where you have to add more. Um, I think one of the most potent, potent ones that I'm familiar with is the nitric acid pH down. Um, so, yeah, make sure that you're taking a look at what you're using and uh, don't be afraid to, to change pH down if you need to. Yeah, and be aware out on the market too, there are a range of dilution rates that these add, like they're all acids, they come in various options, but most manufacturers will have a little bit different dilution rate. If we're looking at say P, uh, phosphoric or nitric acid, we've got four different manufacturers. This is just round numbers I'm talking about. They're all selling the same product, right? So one of their ways to differentiate themselves is say, hey, we're at a 38%, a 45% concentration. Hey, we're at a 50%. We're the strongest on the market. So paying attention to that is pretty important and that's going to affect how much you have to put in. Usually old school method, like a 105 gallon tank, go slow, be patient. And as always take notes, you know, after, if you have a particular mix that you're putting in, like let's say you're 3.1, pay attention. If you notate how many milliliters of pH down you put in, post mix, you can start to replicate that every time. And then it's not a stand there, put in a few drops, mix and wait and test. Now you can nail it every time provided your incoming water is the same. Yeah. I shoot, man. I, I, I remember many a times where it's like, all right, let's, let's get some pH down in here. And then you watch it rise back up as it gets mixed into dilution. So. Oh, absolutely. And you know, for it, it, particularly if you have like fairly hard, high pH water, um, I've had a lot of luck in the past when I am dealing with high pH water input. Once I figure out how much pH down I'm going to need post salt mixing, I'll actually put about half of that or maybe even the whole dose in before, let that mixture homogenize and then add my salts because I don't get as much fallout mixing in the mid five range versus mixing up at like, let's say seven plus. Yep. And I mean, that's just going to depend on what type of mixing equipment you have. Obviously, if you're in a, a dose of situation, that might not be the easiest solution. Absolutely. Um, they did mention 105 gallon tank though. So I, I think they're hand mixing. The best you can do is take notes. And like I said, really understand that water quality has a lot to do with how you're going to approach this and realize that it's going to be, that amount is going to be maybe not necessarily totally unique, but you can't compare those amounts of pH down to what other people are doing necessarily. You've got to establish how much you need in your specific application with those specific products. And when you switch from something, let's say a 45 to 50% concentration, those are two easy ones I can think of off the market. Uh, you're going to have to get used to adding a little less if you switched up to the 50 or a little more if you switch down to the 45. Amazing, you guys. Thank you so much, PNW Farmer. Good luck. Let us know if you have any other questions. All right, on the on the uh, subject of nutrients, I got this question in from Cesar. They write, how often should I feed nutrients in cocoa? I'm currently using Athena ProLine at 3.0 EC, but I noticed my runoff EC was in the double digits, which caused my media pH to spike down, which caused many plants to not fully develop. What do you guys think? 
I mean, I'd break this down a little bit. Usually when I see pH level or excuse me, EC levels a little bit high, it typically is not going to affect your pH level um, significantly unless you've run into an imbalance in there in which you're going to want to analyze some other things that are going on in there. Um, you know, as far as uh, feed EC at 3.0, um, Athena in this case, you know, fertigating on a daily basis in cocoa, that's pretty regular for a fairly stable um fertigation regiment so you, you might check out some other impacts that are going on in there i mean give the token advice here get some root zone monitoring so we can see what's actually going on inside your root zone all we know is that the ec is high right but an important thing to think about once you build up to those higher ec levels if you've been maintaining appropriate runoff and replacing your negative ions as they get consumed by the plant or uptaken we shouldn't see very much pH shift at all because we have a higher concentration of ions. So when we change that balance just a little bit from positive to negative, it's not as impactful as at a lower EC state. If I'm looking at a balance of 2000, a balance on 2000 ppm of nutrients in there and I remove 500 of that, that's much more impactful than if I have uh, 8000 and I remove 500 to the total balance. So going back in time and looking at probably your runoff strategies as you built up, that's a common thing we see is people really wanting to push that high EC, especially under high light, high CO2 situations, you know, the new world of LED growing. A lot of the focus is on getting that EC number up early on. And if we're not giving it appropriate runoff while we're trying to stack that, then over time we can hit that low pH scenario. And at that point, if that's been a persistent problem that's been building over time, then it is much harder to correct. So that's part of why getting your daily runoff readings, reading pH, and then maintaining, you know, if you're, my general rule is five to 10% of my irrigation volume, I want to be runoff every day. If I'm pushing runoff that day, and if I'm trying to build my EC, I'm gonna go no more than two or three days without runoff. That way I can push some runoff, check my pH and make sure I'm not pushing that down as I'm trying to stack it up. I think the fundamental thing there is understanding that when we just put the salts in, we have full control over that pH. What we're dealing with is what the plant's doing with that nutrient solution after we introduce it to the media and then looking at that trend over time in pH. Love it, Cesar. Good luck. If you need some assistance with uh, tracking and monitoring your plants, Aroya knows something about that. So hit us up. All right, YouTube. We got a question from Dr. J related to um, feeding. They want to know, should I feed till the end or back off on anything the last two weeks? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> I, 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 you know, I think we've, we've hit on this one quite a few times. We'll, we'll get, get into it briefly here today. Obviously there's lots of products from pretty major nutrient suppliers these days that are, you know, encourage, are encouraging a decrease in nitrogen towards the last 10 days, um, two weeks there. So we, you know, I always like to call that the ripening phase of the grow cycle uh just because you know, we've got a lot of different approaches there but everything's got the same goal right reduce uh the amount of carbohydrates in there so that we get a little bit cleaner burn um do, doing that by reducing some of the nitrogen and implementing more generative types of strategies um and and so a lot of times you know what i what i like to talk about is uh nutrient levels based on whether we are changing our nutrient blend or not. So, um, you know, if I am uh, changing up my nutrient blend, a lot of times I'll stay at the same pH or excuse me, the same EC or drop to maybe three quarters. Um, if I'm not, then a lot of times I'll drop to half to three quarters um, towards the end of the cycle. Yeah. The big thing to look at there is whether we're actually using a finishing product or we're using a one mix flower solution that, you know, the only way we can control that nitrogen is by actually lowering that feed EC. And then the challenge becomes, you know, right back to root zone monitoring, being able to see when that plant has really started to enter senescence and has is not feeding very much anymore. That's one way we can dial like, hey, we're not needing to replace as much ions with our nutrient feed every day to maintain that pH and EC. And as we see that, so over time, this is something that you shouldn't really hammer hard on one run, but rather analyze over time looking back and really start to nail when we can either drop that feed EC or ideally on, you know, certain like more fickle strains, hey, we need to maybe look at a product that allows us to lower that nitrate ratio a little bit earlier because we're seeing a plant that has some sensitivity to it. So it really depends on what line you're running, how complicated you're making your mix. And then uh, really remember that you've spent, you know, at this point, if we're 
50 days into the growth cycle, we've spent 50 days acclimatizing this plant to a certain EC level within the root zone. And uh, we always have to maintain pH, even in ripening. We don't want to see that tank out or go too high. So we're kind of just balancing, keeping the plant in a comfortable zone where we're not going to totally uh, lock it out because we're tanking the pH down below five. And we're not basically changing the EC, the salinity in the root zone too radically. Because again, we spent two months building this plant up to uh, tolerate that EC zone. Rapid shifts in that the plant can't really react to. So, you know, when you go back to uh, the old days of the two week flush, no nutrients. The problem is we've built up a bunch of EC, the plants, the plants roots have adapted to it. Now we wash away all that uh, EC, our osmotic uh, differentials reversed. Now there's less ions outside of the root than inside. And it's really hard to get water to go up into the plant. So we really just want to keep the plant comfortable and not torture it and kill it too much by putting it out of health ranges. We're looking at, you know, stressing through irrigation, not the roots essentially. Yeah. And, and just a quick clarification on those numbers. I was using it, uh, say 50% or three quarter, uh, I'm talking about in, um, as a percentage of your typical feed strength, right? So if, you know, if I was feeding it uh, four for most of the flower cycle, um, and, and then I wanted to be at 75% strength, that would be a 3.0 EC. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, you guys. Thank you for that. All right, Ian just dropped this question on YouTube. Again, I think we're still on the uh, nutrient topic, but they wrote, how do you guys feel about using Power SI Bloom and Flower? We're using Athena Pro line with one gallon cocoa. Thanks. Any experience uh, with that? Yeah. I mean, so power size, a, a very reputable silica, silica additive on the market. Um, you know, there, there has been some studies that show it, it does increase the, the durability of cell walls. Um, so we, so in, in application, a lot of times what we see is a little bit better pest resistance. Yeah. I, I think what they're talking about a little bit is power SI has expanded into selling, you know, base nutrient salts. Um, as far as that goes, I personally have not run them. I've used Power SI Silicate in the past. That was a great product. Uh, most likely, depending on your water quality, you're going to see quite similar results between the two so long as you operate both of them within ranges that they work. And where that comes in with different manufacturers, you know, and that's one thing to ask if you are talking to a representative from these manufacturers, you know, questions like, what pH do I need to be mixing this, uh, this fertilizer at? Is it sensitive to high pH producing a lot of fallout? So I'm going to have trouble with my, you know, I'll keep mixing up a certain amount of nutrient and not getting the EC that I'm after. So that mean, might mean I need to mix that one a little lower pH and just basically getting familiar with how to operate it. Um, we're pretty fertilizer agnostic uh, between those two brands. I doubt you're going to get one that is a bad fertilizer. So for you, it comes down to what brand do you like? What's easier to use in your system and what's the most cost effective? Yeah, you know, and kind of a, as a general rule of thumb, you know, if you are in a commercial facility, it's probably good to do a couple of test runs before you, you switch over your whole production line. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing, if you're operating on a commercial level that can be hugely beneficial is uh, having a test bench in a room that you have the ability to run a different nutrient line on, whether that's a 55-gallon drum in the hall with an airstone that you're hand mixing to basically feed one bench or a little bit more advanced system. Either way, it's best to do these trials side by side with the same strains in the same room and figure out what the results mean. Because if we protract it over, hey, here's my averages on, I'll just pick it on Athena and Power SI here, but here's what we get running Athena and then we just switch a whole room over to Power SI, that doesn't account for any of the variables that can happen anywhere along the way with the grow. So if I had one round that everything went off perfectly, I was running Athena and then, uh, Hey, we got a different veg manager in and we had two rounds of uh, veg plants that were not healthy. Well, that's not really a fair evaluation of the fertilizer there. So anytime you're evaluating that, eliminate as many variables as possible and make it uh, as much of a side-by-side -side comparison as you possibly can. You know, and one of the, the big challenges that I find when testing out different nu nutrient manufacturers is that not always am I going to see the exact same results at the same EC from nutrient manufacturer to nutrient manufacturer. So, I mean, yeah, that's kind of a, a baseline of where to start. Um, but it's not necessarily going to mean that, Hey, when I'm at 
you know, three, five in Athena, I'm optimizing my plants that when I'm at three, five with power SI, my plants are going to be optimized as well. So that's, that's kind of a curveball that, uh, you know, a few test runs might give you the chance to learn more about. Yeah. It's important to remember too, when we're talking about fertilizer, there's only so many plant essential elements out there, AKA nutrients. And there's only so many sources of those particular nutrients in terms of the chemistry and how they come in salt form. So when we're looking across manufacturers, we're looking at, you know, production quality, how, how consistent, smooth, and pure is that particular product? And then uh, what are their various nutrient concentrations within that? So each, each company is going to have a little bit different formula in terms of how much NPK and then all their micro ratios they're giving. So that, that's part of what ties into uh, why different ones perform differently at different EC levels. And then the end user, obviously, um, accessibility and costs are going to come into play as well. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things that, all right, maybe if I'm using half as an expensive nutrient, but I'm still getting three quarters of the results, um, it kind of depends on, you know, what market you're in. Uh, if, you know, if I'm doing bulk and we're doing distillates and extracts, then maybe that's actually a more profitable route to go. So uh, when you're thinking about those, you kind of got to get holistic and um, compare those results with what... Um, your expectations are for that business. Yeah. I mean, it's a good thing to look at is uh, there's a handful of companies in the past that had very complicated nutrient lines, right? We're talking about six plus different products that we need to mix in our tank to work. Did those and do they continue to produce great results? Absolutely. Uh, but if I have a eight or 10 part nutrient mix that I need to figure out how to inject in a commercial skid, that's not necessarily practical and I might actually spend more money making that system work or lose more money when it plugs up or doesn't work right and I start killing plants. So there's, you know, definite uh, operational risks associated with any different thing you do anytime you're going to change something and it's important to evaluate those before you make that jump and some of them are easier. If I'm going from hand mixing eight different parts every morning <laughs> to having three dosatrons and a pH meter that just takes care of my batch tank for me, hey, I might have saved a lot of money and maybe I get the same yield, but a little bit lower uh, terp concentration, let's say, or terp quantity. Okay, well, did that make a price premium on my actual end product? And sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes it's no. So that's the whole thing is makes basically, you know, your grow has to align with your business plan or your business plan has to align with the style you want to grow in. But if they don't, it's going to be very difficult to be uh, successful in the long run. That's right, y'all. Trying to make sure we get that return on investment. Perfect. Thank you guys for that. All right. I've gotten a couple of questions in. People are describing their, their setup and their situation and want to get you guys insight on it. So let me, let me get to those. This first one came from Kenny. He just dropped this on YouTube. He writes, I have a room that stretched 10 inches in between weeks four and five. Plants usually stop around 40 to 45 inches, but these are almost 60 inches. What would cause this? I haven't changed plant count or veg time. Sounds like a nice problem to have. Uh, so, yeah, you know, assuming that you are working with the the same cultivar, um, the data, you know, within a cultivar here, uh, obviously maybe any changes in fertigation strategies would be probably one of the first ones that I see. Um, you know, there is a chance, uh, I was working with a client recently that where their um, HPS bulbs were just starting to lose intensity. Um, and that resulted in, in a different morphological expression from the plant than they had in the past. And, um, you know, so first really I would look at um, fertigation strategies. Uh, you know, are, are, did we have any changes in there that would encourage that plant to continue stretching? Um, longer in the cycle, um, things like light intensity, uh, when we, when we talk about lower light intensities, um, kind of counterintuitive, but lower light intensities usually make the plant stretch more. Uh, and that's because they're, um, doing some apical dominance. They're looking to try and capture as much light as possible. And how do they do that? They get closer to the lights. Yep. Anytime your plants are short on light, they're going to stretch more. Um, one thing to look at, just as Jason said, fertigation strategies, if you have been pulsing those plants harder than you previously have, or switching strategies earlier. That's another common thing we see switch, switching, excuse me, from uh, generative over into vegetative too early because what we're trying to do is work with the plant's natural cycle. Every strain we work with has a certain amount of time that, you know, it's called determinism in plants. Basically, once we go to 12-12, that plant's on a, life, a timed life cycle, right? There's a certain amount of days it wants to die. It wants until it dies. 
anything in there is going to be determined by energy inputs on how long that actually takes. But if we're maxing out all of our energy inputs, that lifespan should be about the same every time we grow that strain. Within that strain, we've got a stretch period, a period where it's setting flowers, and a period where it's bulking up the flowers, and then we have our ripening period. So we want to adjust our fertigation strategies to reflect those different growth phases of the plant. So pulsing too hard in certain strains too, especially if once you, if you've been growing them for years with a pretty conservative strategy, and now you're rolling over into trying to crop steer them harder and produce more yield, there's certainly a, I don't want to say huge, but a reasonably large subset of strains that do not respond to hard bulking signals or some of the more high nitrate fertilizers in the way that we want those signals tend to push them to continue to stretch. And, you know, that's kind of a sign that sometimes, Hey, we need to evaluate was our irrigation strategy on point for this run. And then holistically, were our lights bright enough? Did we have enough CO2? Did we have enough inputs on this run compared to the others to match the performance? But overwhelmingly we have seen a lot of, uh, especially as you know, HPS bulbs become more expensive, harder to find recently. A big problem with people run in, you know, in a commercial facility or even a non-commercial facility, your bulbs don't all pop at once. So <laughs> a few years into operation, a lot of times you've kind of got this checkerboard pattern or rough checkerboard of some lights that are brand new, some that are three months old, some that are a year and a half old. A lot of people aren't changing them until they pop, which is sounds good financially until you factor in that, hey, year in, we're seeing a lot of these HPS bulbs lose 30% plus of the PPFD they're putting out at canopy level. Yeah. I was just kind of thinking of trying to, trying to get a strategy on there and maybe you just write the date down on the ballast. So when you change the bulb, you know, it might be a simple thing. Obviously it's what I do with my oil changes, just trying to keep track of things that you're not thinking of. Um, just get it right down when you do it. Yeah. You know, and another great strategy is if you don't already have a PPFD meter of some sort, uh, number one, it's great to get a fairly accurate one. The biggest thing you're looking for is precision, but map out your room a little bit. Go around there every run at like three different points and say, hey, at the canopy, am I getting this PPFD that I know I need? And if I'm not reaching that number, why is it? You know, sometimes we'll see plants even uh, like, hey, why did my Mac 1 not produce as much? <laughs> it's not a stretchy plant, but it's like, oh, well, it's shorter than normal this time. And when we double light distance, we actually have a, it's, it doesn't have your light energy. You have about a quarter as much. So the farther in, inches make dif, make a difference, I guess, is what I'm getting at when it comes to the amount of light energy hitting your plant. So right back to crop registration, holistic approach, right? Document yeah. everything. Good luck out there, Kenny, with, with your massive plants. Uh, yeah, it's tough out there. All right. Lucky Farms wrote in. They write, sometimes when I water, I notice I struggle to reach my max uh, water content of 60% with drip irrigation. Many times I'll get to 50 or 54%, but I know it can go higher because when I hand water with the same amount of water, it seems to saturate the media up to 60 to 65% based on the sensor readings. I know challenge uh, channeling could be a possibility, but the pot seemed adequately saturated when using drip irrigation, and I never dry back more than 15 to 30%, depending on which phase of flower. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so basically what I'm hearing is the question is, all right, if when I hand water, I can get a slightly higher field capacity than when, when we're running on drip. And, um, and I, the question that I would come to is, all right, well, you know, how much runoff we're getting and how fast we get that runoff, right? So you might actually be above field capacity if you're you're hand watering and you're going to see some readings up there at say 65%. You know, there's, there's a chance that um, our substrate is super saturated for a short period of time and some of those readings are coming through. So that would be my intuition as far as why you're, you could see that. Yeah, when we're when we're talking drip on you know any different kind of media, it's important to look at is it cocoa, is it rock wool, is it rock wool that we've over dried at any particular point because thirty percent might be kind of pushing it for most of the run on your rock wool dryback. Um, if it is cocoa, I think one of the first indicators I'd look for is uh, am I getting any runoff before I actually hit field capacity in my P one watering cycle. So if I've got five P ones, but I start to notice a little bit of runoff after my third event. And a little, you know, third, fourth, and fifth, I've got runoff, but I'm still seeing my water content going up. That means I'm putting it on too fast. And a certain portion of each irrigation is not reaching the plant. We want to uh, shorten those irrigation durations 
or spread them out a little more in time until we can see that, hey, we're hitting field capacity without achieving any runoff. And then another distinction is whether or not you're using a uh, you know time series data in terms of like automated collection, or are you using something like the Solus and stabbing that pot right after you water? Because if we're leaving a sensor plugged in over time, what we typically see with people, and I think some of the Rockwell examples, I wish I had a graph to show you right now are great. Like, hey, I just went in and hand watered, tried to get these back from 25% up to my 60, 70%. It'll go up and then 20 minutes later, it's right back down. And that on the graph is what that super saturation just Jason was talking about. I'll never do that again. You can slap me. <laughs> I was thinking of somebody who had this issue, but uh, that's what it looks like. You know, sometimes that media it does take time for that water to uh, travel down through the media and actually run off. And then another thing to consider, just like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, when are we looking at this? If we're in cocoa and you're hitting week six, seven, that's actually expected if you're growing a healthy plant that's really overtaking that whole media. So it is what it is. <laughs> you know, sometimes you're locked into a range you don't expect, but at that point you have to kind of play with that range and work within it. Appreciate you guys. Thank you for that. Um, okay, I'm going to move on. We've gotten two questions regarding pot size, because as we know, pot size matters. So I'm going to start with this one from Mr. Mary Jane. They wrote in, I'm currently in a three-gallon Floriflex matrix system pot. I'm only getting a 10 to 13% dryback. Would you recommend downsizing to either a one or two-gallon pots? He's actually looking for a size recommendation. I'd probably step down to a two-gallon as your, your first per step and that'll give you a little bit more flexibility in your crop steering strategies. Yeah. Start, start down at a two gallon <laughs> for sure. And then also maybe look at like, you know, are you dropping a clone straight into that three gallon pot? If so, you're probably not getting the best root development throughout veg just because that's a lot of effort for that clone to really overtake that pot. So look at a few strategies and for reference, if you're in a three gallon pot, I mean, what would you say, Jason, nine foot tall plant? in a general crop, a nine, 10 foot tall plant in a general crop steering scenario. You know, for reference, the first time I switched down to like a one gallon pot or a three liter biochar, uh, we're, we're flipping plants at 36 inches, roughly the same as we were in a three and a half gallon pot. But now instead of getting, you know, five feet tall, those plants were pushing eight and a half feet tall because we had to water them so aggressively just to keep up with their needs. So uh, start with your two gallon. And if you're still not getting the control you want, you can go back to a one gallon. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the, the transplanting thing there because, um, I've seen it both ways out there, uh, where, you know, we can go right into a cocoa bag, um, from our clones. Uh, and that's obviously going to save us a little bit of time, a little bit of money. Um, and then obviously just, just less labor overall. And so, you know, it, it really comes down to as, as how well can you manage that irrigation strategy during your rooting in period? Um, obviously in a three gallon, it's going to be extremely difficult to go from a clone into a three gallon, just because you're going to have so much reservoir water in there that we're not going to get a lot of, um, a lot of dry back, a lot of activity that we're pushing for when we want those roots to seek out the, the water in the media. Um, so, you know, it, when you are going to two gallon, if you're still transplanting, um, into a veg cube, um, hopefully it is a cocoa core cube just because i like to stick with similar types of medias no big deal if you are in a four inch rock wall those also transplant pretty well just a little bit different into a two gallon or three gallon um cocoa bag um and so obviously yeah, i would keep doing that um if you're in a one gallon you want to start getting wild um uh, save some time save some money it's a chance that you'll get good results in a in a one gallon getting the cocoa or the clone right into the, the cocoa one gallon yeah, if, if I was in your position in the three gallon, I would go with an intermediate. I mean, I know Jason used to grow in three, three and a half gallon medias as well. And we we're always running a four inch intermediate media before we transplanted into the bigger three gallon. Um, if I were you, I would look at either rock wool or just like Jason said, a cocoa intermediate substrate. That way you're putting in a plant that has a lot more root mass and a lot more transpirational ability to really aggressively root in. And one of the main ways we push that rooting in practice is by successive irrigation. While in the three gallon, if you over irrigate that little clone, you're going to, you're going to drown it, right? We need to get some oxygen down into that root zone. 
So I would, I would play around with options. If you are in a space where you're trying to grow the biggest plants possible, which uh, I'm jealous, that would be pretty fun. I think I would probably try to grow them fairly big in veg, transplant them. And by big, you know, two feet, two and a half, transplant them and then give them a week and flip them. Yeah, I was actually kind of thinking about something that I don't think we've hit too much in the in the show yet, and that is um, some of the application differences between um, plastic bags and and mesh bags in a cocoa, and it, it it's kind of amazing how much difference that can cause in, in water loss. And really, what's going on there is mostly evaporation um, from the side of those bags with that with that mesh bag. And so when we think about all right, you know, maybe I, maybe I need to be between a one gallon and a two gallon. Um, but I don't get quite enough um, water loss in my two gallon to get as many irrigations in there as I want. And you might actually just move into a two gallon with the mesh sided before you go all the way down to the one gallon um, and, and vice versa. You know, maybe I'm in a one gallon, but uh, I have other reasons that I don't want to move up in media size and you're in a mesh sided. Uh, I got to store a little bit more water in there. Let's go with the plastic side of bags. Yeah. And it's, it's important to remember too, there's a, there's a pretty good rooting in difference between mesh and plastic. When I've got a mesh bag and I've got all that air pruning going on at the side of the pot, that's affecting how those roots are actually structured. Doing that, the roots branch off a lot more. We don't have nearly as long of a space and because those roots have a shorter distance from the root to the stem or the root tips actually where the water uptake happens because water uptake is happening just on the very tips of the roots. I'm building a much more efficient root system that has way more points to uptake that water from. So that's another thing to consider. A lot of times I can get a bigger plant out of a one gallon mesh than I can plastic bag, but I'm giving up that steering ability. That's a great point. Thank you guys for that overview. Okay, here's the second pot size question from Chronic Sosa over on YouTube. They write, is 12 plants in one gallon or nine one gallon pots best for a four by four micro drip setup? with a 650-watt HLG Scorpion Diablo with far red. What do you guys think? Depends on how tall you're flipping them and what strain it is. Those are two of the consistent, two of the densities that we find some of the best performance in. Um, a lot of it just comes down to how, how bushy does that plant get inside of that, uh, that particular cultivar get in that setting. You know, some are definitely want to grow upright more so they can be crowded a little more. Some want to spread out. And then what's your what's your overall goal? I know if it were me in a one light setup with a single four by four, if that's what you're running, I would probably be running uh, more around that nine plants of light just because I'm not going to have to do as much pruning work and I'm going to get light better, better light penetration and a higher ratio of A to B bud. Um, obviously, we talk a lot about commercial production here and, you know, reducing pruning plant touches that's a big part of it but another thing we found is for a lot of strains backing off from 16 down to 12 down to 9 and then adjusting your veg to produce similar biomass results in a much higher product quality and a much more consistent bud size farther down in the canopy and lower inputs you know anytime yeah. that i'm growing less plants i've got a little bit less labor into cloning uh, a little bit less labor into media um mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, that's not even counting it, especially if we're talking about a, a smaller, more micro grow, staying within uh, your plant count, your allowed plant count in whatever state that you're in. You know, I know different states, uh, some you might be able to run 12, some we might be stuck at six <laughs> and that's a little bit different of a strategy. Fantastic. You guys, thank you for that. And thank you for those pot size related questions. That's an important topic. All right. We got this question about the Solus. Grow Plum wrote in, hello, can you keep the Solus in the soil in the same spot for a couple of days or will it hurt the device? Should be good to go. Uh, you know, any of our commercial systems that are in there for two months at a time, um, most hopefully without the sensor really ever moving. Um, Solus is the same exact sensor head um, prongs on there as our commercial systems. So um, huh. in Agriculture application, those get left in, in fields for years at a time. Uh, the one caveat, though, don't let your, uh, God, I love the word dongle, Bluetooth dongle. <laughs> don't leave that in the body or bottom of your tray and let it get flooded. You know, one of the best practices is if you want to leave it in there, and what we actually have seen plenty of people do over the years is leave one or some guys will go buy three or four solaces. 
and they'll install it in such a way that 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 the little uh, Bluetooth unit is either off the side of the bench somewhere where it's not going to get wet or they'll just unplug it and take it out and then just go plug it back in, take their reading and then leave the room again. But actually leaving it in situ like that, if you can, is preferable because that plant is growing around those prongs in the soil. And if you ever were in a situation where you had uh, data loggers in place that are never moving and you're trying to compare your quick spot measurements with your data logged measurements, you'll notice a little bit of difference between those two, even if you're stabbing the same pot. Fantastic. Thank you guys. Good luck at their growth plum. All right. Chuck dropped a couple questions. Chuck, I'm going to take one at a time. We're trying, we got a lot of questions in, so I'm going to try to do my best to get as many from everybody as I can. So we're just going to start with this first one here. Uh, they want to know for pH, are you supposed to up your input input feed from 5.8 to 6, 6.3 during flower in cocoa? Sometimes I'll let it drift up a little bit towards the very end of the cycle. Um, that being said, usually it, it's not uh, not a huge goal um, when it comes down to it. I mean, we're we're talking about you know maybe six total, you know six at the high end at the very end of the cycle. Um, so you know you're talking all right. Well, let's start the cycle at five eight, and at the end we'll be at six. And it, it, really, the only thing that's going on there is just trying to change a little bit of the nutrient solubility to encourage ripening. Yeah, I've, I've never seen a huge reason to do that. Part of what's affecting that pH change in the root zone is plants feeding or not feeding. And I can regulate that through strategic application of uh, nutrient solution on there. I, I personally like to set whatever my feed, feed pH input is, whether that's a 5.6, 5.8, or 6.0, and keep it right there because then that's not a variable that I'm trying to figure out how it's impacting my root zone, especially, like I said, when that's we're looking at that ionic charge balance. Um, it's tougher to, and we only have so many, so many times that we can influence that, right? We're putting these small irrigations on throughout the day. We're not taking that pot, dunking it in the reservoir till it stops bubbling and just resetting it. So eliminating variables, I think is best. Um, sometimes we'll drift that pH up a little bit to try to correct some low pH in the root zone, but not always recommended. Yeah, and, and I think one of the themes that goes with a lot of what Seth and I recommend on the show, and I I know it comes from you know a lot of the people that I've learned these things from that are masters in the industry as well, and and that is all right. What what parts of this cycle can we simplify as as best as possible, um, and which parts do we need some detail into to really optimize the plants? And you know, so when we talk about all right, we, we can actually do a feed EC, pretty much input feed EC the same over the entire cycle. And we can also do pH the same over the entire cycle. You know, what we can't do is obviously the same irrigation schedules and durations over the entire cycle if we're trying to optimize these plants. Fantastic, you guys. Thank you, Chuck, for that question. I'm going to do my best to get back to your second one, um, but let me get to some more user, uh, visitor questions first. Um, we got this question here. Can you keep LED grow lights height the same throughout the entire grow and just change power to achieve the correct PPFD? Depends. Depends. Yeah. <laughs> if, if your light's powerful enough, absolutely. Yep. I mean, the best thing you can do is get a meter start playing with uh, different levels that you're taking that reading and different light strengths. See where you're actually getting to. It's the percentage on what PPFD a particular LED puts out at 60 versus 70 versus 80 versus 90 is not an industry standard constant. So really dialing that in for the light that you have is best. Um, in my experience, I haven't been able to do that if I want to maintain optimum PPFD. Uh, but that's, that's just my two cents with uh, like a 630 watt panel LED. Yeah. And I, you know, kind of just to go further on, on what Seth's talking about here with the, you know, those percentages not being a standard in the industry, they're also not actually a percentage of PPFD that's coming out of the light. Um, so most of the time, you know, that 60%, 70% is actually talking about, uh, you know, an input power um, that the power supply is supplying to those diodes. Diodes have a little bit different efficiency at different um power levels as well. And so, you know, it's also important to uh, put your lights at those levels and, and document what your PPFD looks like. Uh, so to put some numbers on it, let's say we've got a LED that's uh, typically, you know, a thousand PPFD at uh, 
four foot from the, the light or five foot from the light. The distance doesn't matter. Let's keep that constant here. But if I say, all right, let's turn that light down to 50%, that doesn't mean that it's at 500 PPFD. Um, and that's going to be different from manufacturer to manufacturer. So, so make sure you go through and, and get that documentation down. Uh, and then really from there, it's just kind of simple. It's like, all right, well, we, we know what power we need to be at to hit that PPFD. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, the next thing to balance is, uh, how hard is it to move your lights? Um, if we're looking at being as electrically efficient as possible, you're going to keep those lights close. So you don't have that light loss over distance. Um, if power is not a factor or it's not going to be as much of an impactful factor at the scale you're at and labor is going to cost more to move those, those lights up and down. Well, there, there you've got your answer. Um, that being said, a lot of the newer facilities out there that are coming online, uh, especially as, you know, over time, five years ago, we all wish we could get, you know, 10 or 20 strains and grow those forever. Right. And really nail them down and have ones that work in the facility. Now the game's changed. You need to be building out your grow to grow whatever, you know, the market is demanding at that point in time. And as people approach this, we're looking at, you know, some odd genetics out there, some that get really tall, some that don't get tall at all. So, you you know, some of your investments in the future might be looking at systems like uh, not light movers, but light hanging systems that I can go in and adjust that easily and quickly. Engineering for profitability in the future is something that should in everyone's mind whenever we're looking at equipment inside of these facilities yeah and you know and you know wind systems for um lighting probably you know with hps stuff i would say it's a, a really advantageous option um you know with a little bit better efficiency out of leds i'd say yeah you're exactly right for for certain strain options you know for certain building designs it it is a good way to go but not necessarily as important as it would have been with uh you know in hps situations absolutely you know and when we look at some of the same light panels being used in double stack scenarios versus uh single stack or single plane growing um you know if i've only got four or five feet overhead from the top of my pot that i you know that's i'm hitting the light right there probably not as much of a concern as if i have you know anywhere from seven to 10 feet above the bench in which that light can occupy. Wonderful. Thank you guys for that. All right. We got a couple of minutes left. I'm going to ask this one question because I have an announcement at the end. This one came in from Julius. They wrote, if I'm feeding at 3.0 EC and cocoa from start to finish, how much runoff milliliters should I be aiming for to avoid nutrient lockout? What would you guys recommend? Yeah, so um, kind of just my general rule of thumb is uh, monitor my pH for uh, making sure I'm not getting any nutrient lockout type of issues. Um, and so that's not necessarily directly related to how much runoff that I want. Um, so I always want to make sure that I'm avoiding nutrient lockout by making sure my pH out of runoff is good. Um, and that being said, what I'm doing modulating P uh, runoff for is actually for keeping track of what EC levels I'm at. So typically during generative, um, you know, you can take like Seth's strategy where you're not getting any runoff for a couple of days, um, but make sure you are getting it at least, you know, every third day. Um, I personally, I, I like to get at least a little bit enough runoff every day to get a pH measurement. So that I am keeping that in check. Um, and that being said, I've got some clients that are really well dialed in and they don't, they don't actually have any runoff. Um, they're modulating their, um, their EC levels very well during that stacking period. And, um, they've just got a, a keen enough ability. Um, oddly enough, some of those clients are main nutrient manufacturers as well, uh, but, uh, not for any specific names, but, but they're very familiar with, uh, how to avoid that type of, of lockout. And so they, they don't have to monitor it, but, but for, I would say, you know, 99% of the growers out there, um, you know, making sure that that runoff pH is in check and then using runoff to modulate your EC. All right. So at a 3.0 EC, you're probably towards the, the lowest feeds that we see, um, as commercially successful, um, granted all other uh, variables are optimized in the facility. So good environment, CO2, uh, plenty of light, um, and so 
uh, you know, sometimes that makes it more difficult to stack. Uh, and you, you might not have the option to run enough runoff as you, as you'd like to in that situation. Um, and so you might, might end up saying, Hey, maybe if I go to a 33 or a three, four in, in my grow cycle, uh, you know, I can get a little bit of runoff there and ensure that I'm not hitting lockout and still have the stacking ability during the, the generative phases there at the beginning. Um, and then obviously during vegetative, it kind of comes down to what do you see in the dynamics of those ECs? You know, if we need to make sure that our ECs are pulled down lower, closer to our feed EC, then uh, then a little bit more runoff is going to do that for you. If you see that your ECs are dropping below your feed EC in uh, bulking phases, then it's an absolute easy indicator that you're going to need to up your feed levels. Uh, those feed EC levels need to supply more nutrients to the plant. Hey, I think you touched on something really important there, Jason, and that's, you know, for years and years and years, we always talk about lockout. We all know that means... Uh, the plant's not feeding. We've prevented it from doing that somehow, right? Most of the time in hydroponic situations, when we see a nutrient lockout, it is generally that pH drifting down. Uh, typically in practice, usually five to 10% of your irrigation volume as runoff is about what you want to shoot for as a rule of thumb, especially if you're not having any monitoring equipment. One thing I really love to do, and even if it's just a solace, is try to get an in root, a root zone EC measurement off of the same plant that I'm taking that runoff sample off of. Because if I take a runoff sample off one plant and test one across the table, and that one just happens to have twice the, the amount of EC in it, my, the conclusions I draw from that aren't going to be very helpful, right? So basically looking at like, hey, I'm seeing my EC going up uh, and my pH is fine. That's actually a trend we oftentimes see. If we're looking at time series data, one of the bigger trends we see is actually underfeeding. So feeding at a 3.0, but pushing either too much runoff or not feeding enough and not being able to stack above what the plant actually needs. So basically we're putting in that 3.0 every day, but even without runoff, that plant's pulling that EC down to let's say a 2.6 or a 2.5. And at that point, like we've talked that low EC state, if I'm pulling 500 PPM out of 2000, or 500 out of 1500, that's going to be very impactful to my pH balance right there. So, you know, the old drain to waste is basically, you know, that's what we're all using these days. You're replacing what the plant put in, you're pushing out the things that it doesn't like. And if you really want to dial it, the, uh, the only way to do it is going to be to get some pretty heavy sensor monitoring. So you can really start to dial that in super precisely and having the rest of the system, uh, if I've got a 2000 square foot room with eight tables and one irrigation valve, I'm not going to be able to have the granularity to really dial that in. I'm going to have to go with a little more runoff just to make sure that all the plants are inside of an acceptable range. So that's probably one of the first places to start is how much control do you have? Um, if it turns out a lot, if you have a valve for every 12 plants in your basement grow, sure, we can really start to dial that in. If we're running 100 or 200 plus plants on one valve, we've got to start talking about, okay, what's the best, best practice to make sure that all these plants are receiving somewhere between 2 and 10% runoff when we want it, and that all of them are being held inside of an acceptable EC and pH range. Yeah. It, wow. I mean, I'm oh, sorry, Jason, go ahead. Oh, you're good. I was just, just going to say, you know, sample sizes, obviously, if you've taken a statistics class, you you know what you're familiar with the in number is. And then that's just basically the number that says, Hey, I can attribute this population, um, within a standard to deviation. Um, if I have enough samples, right. And in most cases getting that like statistically significant number of samples is not a financially viable option. And so we have to kind of think, uh, let's make some assumptions in here about the consistencies in, in our grow room and say, all right, well, if I get five samples per hundred plants, that's enough for me to feel confident based on you know what I'm seeing across this system. Yeah. I think that's a, a good point to talk about too, you know, in relation to, uh, like automatic irrigation. That's part of why it's really tough to actually have that work on a large pop plant population level without enough sensor density. So if I've got a room and one valve and one sensor, that's a pretty small sample size. It's really hard to draw good conclusions and make good choices. So I need a statistically represent or a statistically significant representative of that population in order to decide what my actual ranges are. And that's part of why we've seen, you know, a pretty slow progression when it comes to like AI irrigation, for instance, because 
hey, we can do a lot of computer modeling. We can do a lot of if and then programming. If you don't have enough sensors and valves for the uh, program to actually work with, you're not going to have success on that front. So that's part of why we look at, you know, well, that's part of why we're not as directly in controls. Our focus is on, you know, getting that great data quality and being able to make these good choices, which is, hey, that's that's data, not direct control. Even though we do control the open sprinkler, um, it's something to think about long term for your facility. You know, and some of that doesn't just go back to soil sensors or substrate sensors or environmental sensors. Hey, if you're really invested in this, you might want to invest in some nice handheld environmental sensors too to just be able to go redundantly check different things you have going on in your system. Anytime we're relying on technology, that technology can break. So we need to build our operations in a way that hopefully has some redundancy. That way we're, you know, number one, covering our back if something does break. Number two, we always say you don't have good crop insurance in this game. So when something does break and you suffer some crop loss for it, it's a lot more penalizing than it can be in other businesses. Yeah, you know, Roy's got a, a YouTube video out there. I think it's called Sensor Density or Growth Behavior. It kind of just breaks some of this down um, with visuals on why, why it's important to take these considerations when growing at scale. Way to end this episode on a high note, you guys. I think this is our longest episode ever, too. Look at us going a few minutes over. Thank you guys so much for all of this great information. Before we go, though, I wanted to let everybody know Office Hours Live is heading to Sacramento, California. We're collaborating with the Connect to bring crop steering and cultivation conversation live and direct to Sacktown. Guess who's going to be on the panel? Southern Jason. Guess who's co-moderating with Sergio? Me. So the whole team is going to be there. Y'all should be there too. We're going to drop uh, the RSVP link in the chat. It's a free event, but you got to RSVP. And uh, if you're in the area, we would love to see you. We hope you can come out. Um, but Seth and Jason, thank you so much for a great show. Shout out to Chris, the producer for holding it down. Thank you so much for this great session. Thank you all for joining us for this week's Arroyo Office Hours. To learn more, to, more about Arroyo, book a demo at arroyo.io. And our team will show you the ins and outs of the ultimate cannabis cultivation platform. If you have crop steering or cultivation questions you want us to cover, drop them anytime in the Arroyo app, email us at sales at arroyo.io or send us a DM via Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We want to hear from you. If we didn't get you to your question today, don't, don't worry. We got you. We got a little bank. Uh, if you're a fan of the pod, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you never miss an episode. We'll see you at the next session. Thanks, I just, everybody. I just got to say, Keisha, if anyone yeah. plans on coming to those connected events, try to RSVP early. Um, I know. We don't organize it, but for Sergio's sake, it's really tough when you get a lot of demand just a few days before the event because yeah, pretty tough to change that venue last minute. And uh, they're really exciting. We love to see as many people there as possible. It's a good time. That's a good point. Thank you, Seth. Yeah, we want as many people to come as possible. Sergio hosts amazing events. Uh, but yeah, definitely RSVP because uh, they're popular. I have to, I'm dropping this in the chat here. We'll drop it on YouTube too. So we'll hopefully see y'all in Sacramento. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.